The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. Until uh, this chapter, uh, really, there's been a familiar sequence, cycles of events, sin, oppression, crying out to God, a judge being raised up, victory and peace. But now we have a complete departure from the sequence. It's a horrendous episode in Israel's history. Abimelech, again, is Gideon's son by his concubine who lived in Shechem. And unlike Gideon's other 70 sons, he's an illegitimate child. He did not stand to inherit because of his position. And as the story unfolds, we see a man who feels that whatever he will get out of life, he will have to get for himself and who is utterly determined to get whatever he can. Now, that may sound familiar to you because it is much, by and large, a spirit that is in our world. We look at ourselves and we say, if there's anything that I'm going to get out of life, it's going to be gotten by myself. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to do whatever I can to get all, of I can, all that I can in the world that I'm living in. And it is a deceptive uh, spirit. It is uh, a tempting spirit to us because... We really start to believe the anthems that are in this world that, you know, you need to look out for number one first. You need to go and do and get everything you possibly can get for yourself. And if you don't do that, then there will be nothing gotten for you. And the scene of most of the action is important. If you would think about, in our American history, uh, as important as Gettysburg and uh, Montgomery are places of great historical and national significance for Americans, Shechem was a place of huge importance in Israel. If you can remember, it was the place, Genesis 12, where God appeared to Abram to tell him that this was the land he had promised to give him. How many would agree that's a significant place? This is the place where Abraham received the covenant promise from God, Shechem. And it was the place where Abram's descendants gathered to worship the Lord after they crossed the Jordan River, into the land of promise, into Canaan. It's where they gathered to worship, to remember. It's where God gave the promise. It's where they worshiped. Historically, it's the spiritual center and thermometer of Israel. What happens in Shechem and Judges 9 would be similar uh, to Americans deciding to reinstitute slavery at a meeting in Gettysburg. Are you with me? It would be contradictory. It would be terrible. It would be a pox uh, on our history for us to go back and do something in a place where God set us free, in a place where God brought us out of um, problems. And uh, here we have a problem with Abimelech. And Abimelech is the picture of someone who's completely relying on self, someone who is getting what he wants to or going after what he wants to alone in life. And that brings us kind of to Uh, The first point we're looking at today, the destruction of self-reliance. But I want you to think about this with me, the first point here. The flesh desires control. The flesh desires control. Every other leader in Judges is called by God without seeking the role. Abimelech goes after it for himself. God doesn't raise him up. God doesn't call him into position of leadership. He forces himself into that position. He raises himself. He pushes himself 
into a position that God has not placed him in and God has not called him to and God has not exalted him through. Can I remind you this morning that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's a dangerous thing for us to exalt ourselves. The Bible says that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he would exalt us. If someone is to praise us, let, us be, let it be the lips of others and not our own mouths. And here Abimelech is praising himself, he's vaunting himself, he's boasting in himself, he's lifting up himself. Uh, we can see the dangerous uh, decisions that Gideon had made and now the destruction that is coming from that in the next generation. And surely uh, what a dysfunctional family Gideon must have had. What a dysfunctional uh, amount of children and a bunch of children. What a, what a broken up uh, kind of uh, lineage and heritage. Uh, him doing something out of God's will like he did uh, and following his flesh. Uh, the Bible says the flesh profits nothing. How many believe that today? I, I think we say we believe that, but then we go back and we find value in our flesh. The Bible says walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Walking in the Spirit is walking in submission to God's will. That's what walking in the Spirit is. Some, sometimes I think we complicate it. We make it sound like it's some kind of weird ethereal thing that we have to try to figure out. Walking in the Spirit is walking in accordance with God's will. You can walk in the Spirit. How many are thankful for that today? I can walk, you can walk in accordance with God's will. But in order to do so... I cannot walk in accordance with my own will because my will is often and mostly in conflict with God's will. How many would admit that today? Most of the time, our will is conflicting with God's will. We don't want to do God's will. We want to do our will. Come on, how many are with me today? It is easy for us to do what we want. It is hard for us to do what God wants. Think about it in the, in the context of your job, in the context of your marriage, in the context of your family, in the context of following the Lord in your life and making decisions that are pleasing to God. It is easy to do what you want. It is easy to follow your own wisdom. It is difficult to do God's will. God's will is not mysterious. Uh, God's will is in his word. God is not trying to hide it from us. He's trying to reveal it to us by his spirit through his word to us in these times that we may be people that follow after the will of God, that walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of our flesh. But if I'm not in submission to God, then I am controlling or calling the shots myself. And how many deal with this every day like I do? The flesh desires control. The flesh wants to be in control. This is Abimelech. It's what it pictures. His name means my father is king. That's what Abimelech's name means. Can you imagine growing up an illegitimate child with no direct heritage and having the name, my father is king. In other words, I should be the one that succeeds my father to the throne. Gideon was not supposed to be on the throne to begin with. How many remember that? That was a mistake. Gideon said, I won't rule. Let God rule over you. But then Gideon took tribute. Gideon set himself up as the center. His home is the center of worship, place where people came. Idolatry began to flourish. Once again, we can see that even happening. We can see idolatry in the lives of uh, Gideon's children. Even when Abimelech goes to set himself up as king, what do they give him? They give him 70 pieces of silver from the coffers of the temple to Baal. And this is how he funds his campaign for king. 
He funds it from idolatry. He's not getting his gain and his resources from God. He's getting them from other places, places that God does not honor, places that are uh, coming from resources that are being disobedient to God. And he's grasping at power. He says this in verse 2, wouldn't it be better to have just one ruler? Wouldn't it be good to ensure that the ruler is one of us, Shechemites? Wouldn't it be good for us to take control now while Israel is kind of you know, in transition while there's no God-raised ruler? We've got to take advantage of this. We've got to set one of our own up, and conveniently so, he meant himself. Set me up. Wouldn't it be good if your king were me? This is Abimelech's request in verse 2. The men of Shechem, verse 3, they agree. They give him these 70 shekels. His rise to power is facilitated not by obedience to the Lord, but by false God's funds. And it will be founded on the blood of his half-brothers, 70 of whom he kills in cold blood, on one stone, verse 5. And Gideon killed fellow Israelites. Now Abimelech murders his own family. What is he doing? He's ensuring that there's nobody else, that if he's going to have a viable right to the throne, there will be no one else. Uh, Can we say that Abimelech was not loving towards his family? Didn't have a good relationship with his brothers, his half-brothers. Uh, possibly had some kind of weird dysfunctional relationship with his father. Uh, Had no honor for his father or for uh, the children that came from his father. His mother probably also had her own disdain for the father, her own bitterness and hatred towards uh, Gideon, even her willingness to go along with this and to support uh, this this viable, uh, this, this, uh, this suggestion for him to go to the throne. The other leaders in this book govern on the basis, as we look at judges, of some revelation from God. But here, authority is not a matter of judging or delivering, but rather it's an exercise of naked power. Unlike his father, Abimelech makes no pretense not to be king, nor to be ruling in obedience to God. And there's a good lesson in choosing a leader here for all of us to learn. And that is this. We are far, often, we are far too impressed, easily impressed, by qualities that are unimportant to God. How many would agree with that? The flesh is often far too easily impressed by qualities that are unimportant to God. When they were looking at a leader, they were not considering whether this man was godly. I mean, they're the nation of Israel, the people of God, the people of promise, covenant of promise. Should not their mindset be, the leader that we have needs to be man chosen by God. It needs to be one whose heart is for the Lord whose heart is for truth. But instead, the qualities they see in Abimelech is that Abimelech is able to kill his brothers. Abimelech is able to seize control. Abimelech seems to be strong and powerful in his own flesh. He's able to overcome his own family and and win his own. I mean, he seems to be a warrior in himself. I mean, think about, I think sometimes we don't even process this. Can you imagine? 69 of his other brothers he kills in one place. I mean... I don't think they all laid down. Are you with me? There was a battle that went on between Abimelech and these brothers, and he takes them and he kills them all. I mean, what a bloody battle. What a bloody picture that we see here. But he's killing his own flesh, his own blood, his own brothers. And we can see in our flesh something equally disgusting, if you would. How many know the flesh is capable of disgusting things? Are you with me? Your flesh, my flesh, is capable of disgusting things. You know, sometimes we look and we say, well, how in the world did that happen with somebody 
that was in the church. How in the world did someone fall into this kind of sin or that kind of sin? Because the flesh is capable of disgusting things. When we put confidence in the flesh, it is destructive. There's no telling what the flesh and its insatiable desire to get what it wants and to have power and control, what it will do to gain that power and control. And lest we think that that is never something that we... I mean, sometimes I think, well, I'm not capable of... All of us are capable of disgusting sins. Are you with me? That's why we should not think more highly of ourselves than we should. How many know that if we're not fallen today, if we're not under judgment today, if we've, we've not been, uh, if we haven't perished today, it's because of the grace of God. It's because of God's wonderful grace. Think about where you'd be today if it wasn't for God and His grace. Would you have a family? Would you have a marriage? Surely you wouldn't be here sitting in this place have no desire to follow after God. I mean, some of the children that are sitting in this room wouldn't exist, self-included, if it wasn't for the grace of God, if it wasn't for God's divine intervention in lives. I can think through my own family history, my wife's family history, we, we look back on our families and we can see God's hand of wonderful, marvelous, restorative grace that has placed us here in the place that we are, that has gifted us with our family, with our marriage, with our ministry, that would be impossible without the grace of God. Who are we to think that it's not possible for us to fall into our flesh and to do our own will and to go after our own desires? Come on, you know. How long do you have to feed the flesh before it starts to desire disgusting things? The flesh desires disgusting and destructible things. It goes after things that destroy goodness. It goes after things that destroy health. In our flesh, as Paul said, dwells no good thing. By the way, that is not just pre-salvation. That is present. That is present. Paul declared his body to be a body of death that he needed to be delivered from. Isn't the blessed hope of the church that one day this corruptible is going to put on incorruption? Because we are in a corruptible flesh. How close are we to corruption? As close as we want to be. Are you with me? We're as close as we want to be, as we desire to be. We are as close to sinfulness and corruption as we are in our lack of submission to Christ. In the areas of our lives where we're not submitting to Christ, our minds, think about it, an unchecked mind. Doesn't the filth of the flesh revealed first in the mind before anyone does anything disgusting, they dwell on it in their minds. They imagine it in their hearts. They fantasize about it. It begins in the mind before it's ever acted on in the body. It starts in there. And as we feed the flesh, by, by the way, that's why we need to be careful what philosophies, what things we're feeding our minds. You know, as we understand that our minds can be, what does the Bible tell us, transformed that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans 12, 2. As we're not conformed to the world, as being not conformed to the world is being yielded to Christ, right? I mean, that's how I don't conform to the world. It's by, I, I yield to the will of God, and this is the will of God, even your sanctification. What is the will of God? That we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Conform the image of Christ. Abimelech looks at the things that were in his father's life that were presentable as far as his calling before the Lord, as far as 
the righteousness that he once stood for. Jotham, on the other side, the one son that fled and hid and escaped his brother's murderous uh, ways, what does he do? Well, his name means, his name, I mean, his name means the Lord is perfect. The Lord is to be praised. Uh, his, his stand here is to look back at his father's life and say, didn't my father do good things? Didn't he at one time follow after God? Should not we be focused on that? I don't think he ever looked up his father as being perfect, his name being the Lord is perfect. In other words, confidence, and we have this battle, this story going back and forth between them. Jotham calls out to the men of Shechem. There's a battle for hearts and minds between human self-reliant power that we see in Abimelech and reliance on the worship of the Lord that we hear Jotham calling the people to. God does not prize popularity, humor, academic intelligence, being an extrovert. He seeks people who hold to his truth, who seek to lead their family rightly, who are patient and self-controlled. Can I remind you that if you have self-control, it is because it is a fruit of God's Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Boy, is that seen in our lives, church? Are you with me? Are we more focused as a body of believers in being seen as what is trending in Christianity, or are we more focused as a body of believers on being seen as people who are producing the peaceable fruits of righteousness? The righteousness of God. What is that seen in our lives? Well, we know it cannot be manufactured in the flesh. How many have tried to love like God loves in your flesh and found it impossible? You cannot love unconditionally people who sin against you. I'm talking about the love of God has an ability to love enemies, to love people that abuse you, to love people that hurt you. The love of God is not some skin-deep, selfish love that we see in this world that says, oh, love the people that love you, like the people that like you, do good to the people that do good to you. The love of God enables us as believers to love the people that hate us, the people that despise us. The love of God is not political love. Are you with me? The love of God is not lustful love. The, the love of God is a deep, unending, eternal love that is pure and holy, that is able to transcend and transform and can change the heart of anyone that it touches. I mean, I'm glad that now, understanding that from the Word of God, that God loves you with that kind of love. It's because of His love that you've been transformed. It is possibly the love that Abimelech lacked in his life. He did not see a father who loved him with the love of God. Did not experience. I'm going to know that this amazing thing can have an amazing impact in the life and direction of a child being loved with God's love. I'm going to believe that. Being loved with God's love. Parents, you shouldn't just be trying to love your kids with your love. You should be trying to love them with God's love. A forgiving, restorative, transformative, not provoking to wrath, nurturing, admonishing, correcting, instructing, disciplining, love. That's the kind of love that God commands us as parents to have. Fathers, does not he call you to that kind of love is just provoke not your children wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord uh, husbands does he not call you to that kind of love as he tells you to love your wife as Christ loves the church it is amazing 
and transformative when we have God's love and we love other people with it. Church, that's the kind of love that we need in order to transform the culture that we live in. Not the kind of love that we possess in our flesh that is limited, that is liking only what likes me, that is only accordance with my preferences. Listen, church, if you cannot come in together with this body of believers who has differences in preference and culture and background and different ways that we do things, if we cannot love one another here with that kind of love, you will never love your enemies with that kind of love. Love the brethren. How many, how many believe that's a command from God? To love the brethren. Listen, we're not here to socially kind of get along with each other for a few minutes and then pass on from each other. We're supposed to love each other, forgive each other, be kind and compassionate towards one another, to be real with each other. There's enough false, fake, hypocritical kind of connections, social connections that exist in what people call church today. Real love is love beyond myself, love beyond my own desires, love beyond what gets me what I want. Well, I'm not getting my way. It's not... God's love. God's love calls us beyond ourselves to a depth of love that is transformative and changing. God does not want well-mannered, well-dressed, 21st century equivalents of Abimelech chosen for the wrong reason and the wrong qualities. How many know that we do not need leadership like Abimelech? Self-reliant, self-motivated, pragmatic, controlling, dogmatic, uh, going against God, above jurisdiction, out of bounds, we don't need that kind of leadership. That's not the leadership that God calls us to in our homes, in our families, in our country, in our church. We need the kind of men and women who God is looking for. Those that hold the truth, lead their family rightly, patient and self-controlled. The second thing we can see here in this passage is that God may be silent, but he is not absent. There's one thing from chapter 9 to chapter 10, verse number 5, that is absent from the text. It is not the name God. It is his worship name, Lord. The name that causes God to be put in his rightful position in our lives. He is God, but he is a God above all gods. He is the only one and true God, correct? But here's the thing. That never changes about God. How many know that God is God? He's God overall. He's the only one and true living God, regardless of whether you or I ever acknowledge it or not. He is God. Whether people believe He created all things or not, He did. He created them for Him and by Him and by, for His good pleasure alone. God is the creator. Those factual things about God exist whether or not there are people who believe it or not. How many, how many thankful about that kind of... God, 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 our God is not contingent upon whether or not we praise Him or not. But how many know that our lives change when He becomes Lord of our lives? There's a difference here. And the absence of the Lordship of God can be seen in this passage. There is never a mention here in this passage of the Lordship of God in anyone's life. The problem in Israel is that he was not Lord. He was not king. He was not on the throne. The throne of their heart was empty, and they filled it with their own desires, their own wills, their own flesh. And, and the result was idolatry. 
Ultimately, idolatry is worship of self. How many of us have figured that out? Idolatry is worship of my own flesh. Notice the gods they raise up. These gods give them what they want. They give them what they desire. And what does idolatry do? It enslaves us. And what does slavery do? It enslaves us more. It causes us to go deeper and to think, I've got to try to please these gods even more. I've got to do work harder. It keeps us in slavery and it keeps us in idolatry. Idolatry produces more idolatry in our lives. And that's why polygamy or, or, or you know, polytheism exists. And I think the result of polytheism is polygamy. Are you with me? I think the direct result of polytheism is polygamy. Look at every pagan culture. What do they have? The men have more than one wife. They, they get whatever they want. They go after whatever they want. It's all about getting your desires, your wants, your needs. If you don't like what's gone, just get another one. If you don't like your wife, just get another one. How many, how many understand that that wouldn't work for you very well? But this is, this is what the flesh does for us. And the legality or the illegality of it has nothing to do. What, what are we moving to in our world today? Listen, we're moving more and more, trending more and more in our country towards polytheism, yes? A plethora of gods. You can worship any god that you want. You just can't say that any one of them is the only god. That's polytheism. A coexisting of many gods. What is the result of polytheism? It's paganism, right? It's humanism. It's, it's the utter decadence of the flesh and the society, us going after everything that we want, and ultimately what happens? Every person is doing what's right in his own eyes because there is no absolute truth because there's no absolute God. We have absolute truth because there is a God who has given us that truth. And when God is not Lord, we have a problem. God may be silent, but he's not absent. How many see that in the text? We've learned that throughout the book of Esther, didn't we? God may be silent, but he's not absent. He's there. How many glad that God is always at work, whether we want him to work or not? There have been times in my life where I have not been yielded to the work of God in my life, but I'm thankful that he never stopped working. I'm thankful that he never stops, that his mercies, they fail not, that his faithfulness is unending. It's great. His mercy endureth forever. So the story Jotham tells in chapter 9, which we read, verses 8 through 14, is designed to show the ridiculousness of choosing Abimelech as king. He uses some illustrations. He talks about olive trees in verses 8 and 9, fig trees in verses 10 and 11, and vines in verses 12 and 13. These are all valuable. They produce the main crops of the Israelites' agricultural economy. They understood the value of these plants. But all of these valuable... Trees, plants, pass on becoming king. And finally, all the trees say to the thorn bush, come and be our king, verse 14. How many uh, don't have to be in an agricultural society to understand that thorn bushes are not valuable? Have you ever been in the garden or in some place and you've been you know, stuck by a thorn bush? At least roses, there's a result that comes from the thorns that are there, but... A thorn bush that produces no flowers, it produces no fruit, it produces nothing but pain. It overgrows everything around us. The thorn bush is uncontrolled. What do they do? They just grow over everything that's useful. 
and perhaps maybe their only thing is maybe building fence or barbed wire or keeping you know, some kind of animals out. But here, they pass on becoming king. They invite this thorn bush to come and be king. The thorn bushes are not valuable. They're too short. They're scraggy. They provide any shade from the heat. They, they catch fire often. They spread the surrounding foliage. They destroy more valuable trees. The, the thorn bush points this out in agreeing to become king in verse number 15. And he makes the remarkable claim, given it only grows a foot or two off the ground, that other trees can come and take refuge in my shade. How much shade does a thorn bush produce? He's inviting the trees to come take refuge in the shade that he's providing, in the provision that he's offering. What is Jotham's point? Well, verses 16 through 20 explain it. We're going somewhere, and we're going to wrap this up in a second, but I want you to see this. We have to dig a little bit in the passage, and I want you to see this as we go. Verses 16 through 20 explain it. Essentially, he's saying this. If you've been fair to Gideon's family and making Abimelech your king, you can follow it with me in verse 16. He says, and let's face it, you haven't been fair, but if you have, then you may find great blessing in the rule of King Abimelech. But if you haven't, and let's face it, you haven't been fair to Gideon and his family, then I hope you get all that you deserve. I hope you're burned by him, and I hope he's burned by you. Jotham is showing the destruction of self-reliance. He's declaring to them that the sins that you commit against someone else will be the sins that ultimately destroy you. Are you with me? The sins, if you burn someone, you will be burned by them. The sins that you be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He is disclosing to them the dangerous position they are in under the judgment of God. Now God tells us in his word. God is the one. He says that vengeance is mine. I will repay. He says it's not your job. Christian, are you with me? It is not your job to repay those that hurt you. God will take care of it. You don't have to worry about going out and getting back at eye for an eye, tooth for... You don't need to go back at the people that come at you and wrongfully hurt you and do things to you. Judgment belongs to God. And God will judge righteously and he will judge in the right timing and he will judge in the measure that is worth and he will do a far better job in judgment than you ever could. How many have found that out? So what's he saying? Be faithful to what I, my will is. Be faithful to walking in my spirit. Be faithful to following me. Be faithful to worshiping me. Be faithful to standing in truth. Let me take care of the judgment. What Jotham is disclosing to them, listen, you may think God is absent, but he's not. And God is going to bring upon you, in accordance with your choices here against God, God is going to bring upon you the fire that you've brought upon others. We see the fire here of the thorn bush. What follows certainly constitutes a raging fire. It's depicted perfectly in the parable that Jotham gives. The, city is, the citizens of Shechem have already shown themselves prone to switch their loyalty. We didn't read this, but you can follow. Verse number 26, Gael, the sons of Ebed, move into Shechem. They put their confidence in him. There's great irony in the fact that Gael worships at the temple of the idol, 
who funds Abimelech and uses the same arguments that Abimelech does in verses 28 and 29. Abimelech, unlike the Shechemites, is fiercely loyal to his own cause. His father Gideon had ended up driven by personal vengeance and a thirst for the honor that he felt he deserved. And the son here takes the quest to new heights, doesn't he? He fights Gaul, verses 30 to 41. He conquers Shechem, verses 42 to 44. He captures and kills all its people, verse 45. What a great king to rule over them. This is their king that they have chosen, that they have now been disloyal to. And what does he do? He goes and he defeats the one they chose, and he goes and he kills all of them. Abimelech truly is strong in the flesh. He truly does have qualities that are impressive as a warrior. And so the place where Abram had worshipped the Lord and where Joshua and all the people had worshipped the Lord ends up barren, salt scattered all over it, verse 45, so that its fields cannot even grow crops. The place of God's blessing and meeting has now become a barren place. That happens in my life and your life when we refuse to obey God. When we push back against God and His will, when we refuse to obey Him, when we allow our flesh to have control, the places of our meetings, the sweet places of God, become barren places to us where there is no usefulness and no fruit. How many know that it's the will of God for every believer to bear much fruit? God wants to produce fruit in your life. It is not something we try hard to do. It's something that naturally comes from our lives when we obey God, when we follow God, when we allow His character to be reproduced in us. But what does He say is the future of the fruitless plant? It's fire. The fruitless plant is burned up. The fruitless plant is useless. It's not even good for shade. It profits nothing. Can I tell you that your flesh is a fruitless plant? The Spirit of God can produce in you wonderful, wonderful fruit, but your flesh can never produce that fruit. You can never produce it, but the Spirit of God can. And sometimes what happens even in the lives of believers is when we disobey God and we are chastened by God and we refuse to turn back to God, even the places where at one time we worshiped God are empty, barren places to us. Isn't it amazing that there are Christians who used to love church who can't be found in one? People who used to lift up their hands in praise and worship to God and have no desire to now. Now, God is the judge of their souls. I am not. I have no idea whether they know Christ or they don't. But I'm going to tell you, that's a scary position to be in where no one can figure out whether you're a believer or not, including yourself. And the places where at once were sweet are now barren and ugly and useless to you. The place where God used to speak to you, where God would meet with you, where you would be reminded of the promises of God are now empty and they do nothing in your life. That was Shechem. Shechem was a significant place and now it is a place of barrenness. It's a place where nothing is going on. 
Verse 46, a thousand Shechemites take refuge in the temple of their idol. Interesting, when trouble comes to them, where do they run? Back into idolatry. Oh, idol, save us, save us. They run to the temple of their gods, the stronghold of the tower, verse 46. But Abimelech's thirst for revenge is not satisfied. He leads his men to burn it down, verses 48 through 49. What's he doing now? Women and children have now run into a place for refuge, and Abimelech has now shed innocent blood. He burns down the temple where they are. All the people in the Tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, verse 49, die. Looks as though the town of Thebes will suffer the same fate, verses 50 through 52. And Abimelech approaches the entrance to the tower to set it on fire. A woman drops a millstone on his head and cracks his skull, verse 53. He's fatally injured, and what does he say? To his servant, the one who bears his sword. Run me through with the sword, lest someone hear that a woman killed me. You finish me off. I'm going to die, but I'd rather die by the sword than by the hand of a woman. He's mortally wounded because a woman, and again, we can go back in Judges to show God's embarrassment on these men who lifted themselves up in such strength and just allowed a woman to take them out. Remember Deborah? Jail? Remember the tent peg? Men who were abusive in their power towards women. Isn't it interesting that a man who just burned down a shelter full of women is now killed by a woman? What's God saying to you? What you are doing is coming back on yourself. It's Jotham's curse being fulfilled, isn't it? The fire that you bring is the fire that will come to you. The hurt that you put on others is the hurt that will come back to you. The destruction that you bring to others is the destruction that's coming to you. You are going to be destroyed by your own self-reliance. He's fatally injured, still mindful of his reputation. What does this teach us about the judgment of God? Well, I believe that it points us to three truths about God's present judgment. Because God's judgment is not only reserved for a future day, it's a present reality. How many believe that we can see God's judgment at work today? There is a judgment that's coming, a final judgment. But God's judgment is at work in the world that we live in today. Let's look at three truths that I believe we can learn presently about God's judgment. The first thing is that it comes unseen. It comes unseen. The people at the time could not have seen the spirit God used uh, uh, the evil in Shechemite hearts for his purposes. God sends. Is God absent? No. What does God do? God sends fear. Verse number 21. Verse 23, what does he do? Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the son of Shechem. Is God at work? Surely he's at work. Verse 56, God rendered the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did unto his father in slaying his 70 brethren. And all the evil the men of Shechem did God render upon their heads, and upon uh, them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. God is saying, I am at work. I am working. I am judging. I am handling this. But it comes unseen. In our own day, we have no divinely inspired narrator, narrative here to, to lift the curtain to tell us 
when and how God is judging people. But we know it's happening. We can never point to one event and say, God is judging you for this particular sin that you have committed. But how many know that God's judgment is present in the world today? God is at work. The second thing we know about God's judgment is it comes after a wait. It comes after a wait. Three years pass between Jotham's warning. What does Jotham do after he gives the warning, the parable? He runs away. He hides. He's afraid. Can you imagine running as a fugitive, being the only son that didn't die at the hand of Abimelech? Running for his life, he's waiting three years to see God do anything. And what it looks like, are you with me? What it looks like is that Abimelech is winning. What it appears, I mean, look at what Abimelech does. I mean, he just is able to destroy his enemies. He seems to have control. He looks like he's, he's accomplishing what he's propelling himself forward to do. Listen, if you linger and look long enough at the world, you will be deceived to think the very same thing, that the world, through self-reliance, has gained victory over God and his word and over truth. Young people, the most foolish thing you can do is look at the Saturday night highlight reel of those that are living in disobedience to God and think that they're having some self-satisfying and fulfilling fun that is going to bring some kind of uh, ultimate uh, uh, dream-fulfilling desire to their life. Eventually, sin brings death. Destruction. You just have to wait. It's a cancer. It eats away and eats away and eats away, and eventually it kills. You know, the sad part is, is that there are people who are living in sin and disobedience from God, and it appears like that it has no effect on them. But be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure that sin will. Sin, when it is finished, when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You may not be seeing the destructive results of sin in your life right now, but be sure that sin will destroy you. And that is the deceitful nature of sin, isn't it? Because it is the pleasure of sin for a season that draws us in. Because we enjoy it. And we get what we want, and it's desirous, and it builds us up, and it seems like we're getting all of our fulfilled dreams, our selfish desires, and it's deceptive to us, and that's why God says to the youth of the church, flee youthful lusts that war against the soul. Why does he tell us to run away? Because you're not going to want to run away, you're going to want to run to them. But he's saying the smart, the spiritual, the wise run away from what people are running into. Notice Jotham runs away to God. It seems like he's a coward, but he never could have been stronger. He spoke the truth. He had wisdom. God protected him. And the strong Abimelech could not even be protected from a stone that fell from a tower. He was killed easily in the timing that God allowed Its greatest sin was its downfall. Abimelech was destroyed because of his desire to maintain his position at inhuman cost. He had no need to attack Thebes. 
His greatest sin was his downfall. Shechem's greatest sin was disloyalty, and their greatest sin was their downfall. God in his judgment uses the tools lastly. God's judgment comes through the outworking of human sin. God in his judgment uses the tools of human rebellion against those who rebel. How do we finish the story? I told you, difficult passage. I told you uh, a passage of scripture that we're not coming to come away with fuzzy feelings today. But nonetheless, I think that brings us to the last point that we should not overlook, and that is that there is grace beyond terror. Grace beyond terror. This is a terrible tale, an ugly story, a bloody one. But in the rule of Abimelech, Israel plums the new depths. Yet there's more to come. Look at Judges chapter 10, verse number 1. And after Abimelech. After the terrorist reign of Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shemar, the mount of Ephraim, and he judged Israel twenty and three years and died and was buried in Shemar. Isn't it interesting that a man who gave peace to Israel for 23 years after the terrorist reign of Abimelech We only have two verses on. And the one that follows him, Jer, a Gileadite, verse 3, judged Israel 20 in two years and had 30 sons that rode on 30 colts and had 30 cities which are called Havathajer unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Canaan. God sends grace. Tola rose to save Israel, verse 1. He led Israel 23 years This is the same language used of Deborah, one of the best of the judges. God has raised up someone else who saved and led Israel in the way that she did. And he's followed by another 22 years of peace under Jair in verse number 3. How many would agree with me? There's no other explanation for this, but this is the sheer grace of God. It doesn't say Israel turned back to God. It doesn't say Israel repented. It doesn't say Israel sought God for revival. This is the sheer grace of God. They don't deserve it. They did nothing for it. But God gives them peace. God changes them. The people have completely abandoned him. They have opted to be led by a man who's not chosen the Lord, but by himself, raised himself up. He was not recommended by the Lord's uh, commission. Israel is sunk to the depths that they're not even crying out into repentance. We don't see the cycle of them calling out to God. They've in essence given up. Yet God sends them Tola. But unlike the earlier non-cyclical judges, Shamgar, no enemy is named. Who did Tola rise to save Israel from? It was Gideon and the Midianites? No. Chapter 9 gives the answer. Tola saved Israel from itself. Can I submit to you this morning that it is the grace of God that has been delivered to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that has ultimately, in its greatest depth, saved us not from the enemies that are outside of us, but the enemy that is within us.
we needed salvation from ourselves. That's God's grace. God's people ultimately need a leader who will rescue them from themselves, from their own desires, from their own judgments, from their own disease, from their own failings and ambitions of their own hearts, from the divisions and strife that were among us. And here's where I believe we have a great reminder for the church. What do we need? Church, the greatest problem in the church is not what you think it is. Well, if we just did this differently, if we just stopped doing, if we just did that, everybody has their own suggestions. The greatest problem in the church is the church. Are you with me? The greatest problem in the church is the church. That is the people. Us. We are the greatest problem. It's not events. It's not schedules. It's not the way things are designed. It's us. The problems in the church are brought on by us. How many know that? The greatest problem in your marriage is you. The greatest problem in your home is you. We are enemy number one. That's why every day you and I need to get up and die to ourselves. The flesh needs to be crucified, doesn't it? God says your flesh needs to be put down. What do we need in the church? Godly, humble leadership. Godly, humble leadership. I'm talking about this church locally, but the church at large in the world today. What the church needs is godly, humble leadership. You know what I'm praying for? I hope you'll join me in praying for this. That God will raise up from among us godly, humble leaders. You with me? How many believe that our country needs more churches? Do you think God's not calling men and women anymore in a ministry? He's calling. Are we listening? Are we heeding his call? If the Lord should tarry, I hope God is raising up the next pastor of our church, perhaps next door where the kids are gathering. Are you with me? That should be our heart's desire. Are you with me? Our heart's desire is that God would be raising up leaders that will follow him in humility and heed his call, understanding that if God calls us, it's by his grace, not because we're somehow good or somehow the best, but that we're weak and we're unable, but if we're submitted and yielded to God, he can do anything through us. May God raise you up. May God raise us up in humility. What else do we need, church? Gospel centered unity gospel centered unity unity around anything else is false unity unity around my preferences unity around politics are you with me church i i understand politics i understand it's part of life i get it i get that jobs and careers and social status are part of life but church we're not unified by our politics we're not unified by our cultures. We're not unified through these things. We don't need to be unified through political leaders. We need to be unified through the gospel. 
The gospel is what brings unity to us. Christians are seeking unity in places that are out in this world that don't bring unity. Politics don't bring unity to us. The gospel does. We need the gospel. Are you with me? The gospel can transform the world that we live in. Why are we spending our time wasting our voices publishing any other message than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The church should not become a place other than a place where the gospel is taught, heard, heralded over and over and over and over again faithfully until the Lord returns. Are you with me? How does that happen? We find our unity in the gospel and not in other things. We need gospel-centered unity. What do we need? We need gratitude for God's restorative grace. We need gratitude for God's restorative grace. We've got to give thanks to God who in His grace has given us the Spirit to transform our hearts and restore our relationships. If not, there is no hope for us. Are you with me? There is no hope for us to get along with each other. There's no hope for us to forgive each other. We're only going to stay along. Listen, we're only going to stay together and get, as long, get along as long as we all get what we want. God build us up a church who's not having desires of their own flesh, but that the will of God be done. That we'd reach the world for Jesus Christ. You say impossible. Not impossible by God's Spirit. Impossible in our flesh. If we try to do it in ourselves, it will, we will fail. It will not be accomplished. But it can be done in the power of the Spirit of God. We have to believe that again. Believe it in such a way that we live it. Because is that not the true measure of our beliefs? What we choose to live. If we believe something, it should change our behavior. It should change the way we talk, the way we think, the way we breathe, the way we make decisions, the truth that we live by. May God's wisdom, may God's will be once again the measure of our success we would say, God, we want you to be Lord of our lives. The gospel to be the center of our focus. God, may you be glorified. Do you want God to get the glory from your life? You cannot give God the glory in your life if you are seeking glory for yourself. I think we can learn that from Abimelech. God will not get glory from the life that is self-promoted, that is self-lifted, that is self-propelled. But God can get the glory from a life that is spirit-led, submitted to. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.